According to data from the National Association of Realtors, in 2021, 41% of home buyers and sellers found their real estate agent through a friend, neighbor, or relative. If those same 41% of people found their real estate agent through Climate Change Realty, we could have donated more than $12 billion to nonprofit organizations working on fighting climate change. Welcome to the podcast. Lar, you're on my podcast this week. Thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Ethan. Thanks for having me. You're, you're very welcome. I'm looking forward to this chat about chatting about climate change. Um, <laughs> yeah. But before we get into it, I always love to get a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the current moment. Oh, man. Okay. So I'm Lar Hesse Fisher, and currently I'm a program director at a group at MIT called the MIT Environmental Solutions Initiative. And there I lead our programmatic work on public engagement on climate change. So uh, half of what I do is like digital tools for people who are already interested in climate change. And half the other half is for people who are not really that interested in climate change. How do we get them to be part of the conversation? So that looks a little bit less like communications and more like local engagement. Uh, so that's what I do now. I also run a nonprofit organization called Civic Series. Um, where we host events to help people understand what's going on in the world in a nonpartisan environment. And let's see. Yeah, I guess that's a, that's a bit about what I'm up to. Where, where did it all begin? Where are you from? How'd you yeah, get so there? I, I, like you, am from New Jersey. I'm from South Jersey. And um, I've been a lot of different places, uh, did a lot of different things, but my theme that's been most consistent is this environmental aspect. I'm not even quite sure how the environmentalism got cultivated in me. My only real memory about that is I remember learning about solar panels in high school and I thought, gosh, this just makes sense, you know, like get electricity and energy could be heat or electricity using the sun. Let's do it. Let's go for it. Um, and that really spurred my interest in how do we like implement more environmentally in benign practices or, you know, promote good practices. Gosh. And so I did, I've done like a bunch of, oh, yeah, yeah. I was in, you know, New Zealand working for a recycling company. I was in Canada doing carbon offset and green education work. And then I got to MIT and um, that was the, the launch of my journey. Right. And one thing I found really interesting in my like research about you is that you actually created your own degree in college. Is that right? That's right. I did. So how, do, how uh, does someone go about <laughs> doing that? Is that like a normal thing that people do? <laughs> well, five people did it my year. So I don't know if you call that normal or not normal. And actually, one of them was a friend of mine who learned about it through me. So um, I guess not. Uh, I... I knew I wanted to do environmental stuff, but I didn't want to do like environmental science and biology and chemistry. And I knew I didn't want to do environmental engineering. And those were kind of my options. I want to do more like policy or how do you incorporate environmental practices into planning, stuff like that. So um, I did, I, I basically pitched an idea, got faculty involved, did a thesis, planned out whatever courses I wanted to take. It's pretty sweet. Uh, it was a really yes. a good way to go. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it just goes to show that if you like want to do something like it can never hurt to just ask someone if you can make it happen, you know, and you never know what they're going to say. Well, having a good advisor is a big part of it. I had an advisor who wasn't in environmental stuff at all. She was actually uh, a French faculty member uh, who, who taught French. But she said, have you ever heard of this thing called a plan of study? And I said, no, what's that? She goes, you might want to check it out. 
And that, it was really thanks to her. I don't think I would have found it. I mean, I really enjoyed my time at Tufts University and being able to have the flexibility to take whatever kind of courses I wanted and really play an active role in my own education was uh, a huge part of my experience there. Yeah, I think the only way you can really get deeply engaged in your work is to have freedom of choice and really be able to kind of make your own decision and be like, I'm really interested in this. This is what I want to learn about. And that's why I think uh, my podcast and other successful podcasts actually succeed. Because if I just bring people on that, you know, I, I feel like I need to talk to versus someone I actually want to speak with, I don't think it would work as well. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you came up with the idea for Civic Series and like how it works today? Yeah, sure. So I... I'm a pretty curious person. I like knowing how things work and understanding things. And I was really curious about all these different events and why things were the way they were around the world. Like I didn't understand why is North Korea the way that North Korea is? And why is there this conflict in between Russia and Ukraine um, as a very pertinent example? Or what is the blockchain and why do I need to be thinking about it in terms of someone who makes decisions about our society, right, as a voter and as a citizen. And as I talked to other people about this, I found that I wasn't alone. In fact, almost every single person I spoke to also was really, really curious about why the why the world was the way that it was. And I found that there are actually very few resources. Um, I just wanted someone to sit down and explain it to me. And so that's what I did with Civic Series. I started these sessions in Boston where I would invite a speaker to give a quick overview about what's going on in the world in this region. Like just to give you an example, um, healthcare policy. Like we had somebody just speak about like, like why is there such a debate about healthcare policy? Can you help like help me organize it in my mind? <laughs> you know, what the issues are to help my own thinking. And I think what we do a little bit differently also in civic series, it's not just about listening to some lecture because you can just watch a YouTube video, but most of each of our sessions is Q and A. So you ask your own questions, like those dumb questions you feel like you can't ask anywhere else, or those questions you just can't seem to get an answer to online. And you just want to just have someone explain to you in, in language that you can understand what, without convincing you what to speak. And so what started out as a small little gathering as uh, we have been operating civic series in five different cities um, across the U S and Canada. And now we're actually, we're running a fellowship program in Philadelphia and Boston. So it's been pretty exciting to see the, the growth of our work over the years. Definitely. How many events are you like putting on per year? Um, let's see. We've put on like, I think almost 60 events total. Um, and the pandemic put us through a loop. So, you know, like maybe eight or 10 or not quite once a month, but something like that. Right on, right on. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing. I, I do want to talk about this idea of, of values with you because it's something that's very interesting to me. I'm wondering what you think like your strongest values are, how they've led you or guided you through your work. And, and, and then I really wanted to see what you thought about if it's possible for someone to actually change their values or adopt new values once they've come of age. Yeah. So I think, I think, so two values come to mind. One is... You know, one thing that my parents instilled in me, maybe intentionally, but also just, you know, through culturally, I guess, is the importance of relationships, the importance of family, 
I remember one thing my dad said that I definitely didn't understand when I was a kid. He said, I was, you know, wanting to live all over the world. And he's like, it doesn't really matter where you go. It really matters who you're with. And I'm like, yeah, maybe, I don't know. I'm not sure about that. I think where you go is pretty important. (laughs) But as I've gotten older, yeah, totally. I mean, whenever my husband and I, Sean, whenever we think about, do we want to move here? Do we want to move that? We'd be like, yeah, but we'd have to leave all these people. And it can be hard to find good people that you really connect with. So that's a big part of that. And another big part of that is um, uh, the way that I phrase it is like, we're all in this together. You know, it's like the humanity that we have. So maybe I encapsulate all of that into that. And I actually have a pin um, that I got at a concert where they called their concert. We're all in this together. So that's my, I guess that's like my logo or not my logo. High school musical. (laughs) Oh, right. Oh, shit. You just ruined it for me. (laughs) I forgot about that. (laughs) It's a good movie. And it's actually not a bad song, um, but it's true, right? And I carry that over into my my climate work too. And I think it's been a driver for me. You know, I the, the second value is um, something along the lines of creating a better world, leaving a better world than the one that we have. You know, we live on a planet that is so unique and so rare. And as far as we know, we don't know a single other one, anything like it. And it has so much intrinsic and useful beauty. And we want to make that available for future generations and for all life. And um, so that's a, a core part of of what I think too, and what, what drives me. And so the concept of we're all in this together and we're trying to create a better world. Um, how, you know, how do we bring those pieces together? And you had asked about how values change over time. I mean, yes, absolutely, totally. Or I should say, can can a person's values change? Correct. I, I say for sure. You know, I have a family now. I have kids. And the way that I approach things and the way that I look at the world has changed because of that. Um, I want to be more patient. I kind of have to be more patient, but I want to be more patient. Um the way that I value community has changed a lot as I've gotten more embedded in where I am. And I care more about the, the people and institutions that are around me here that my children are going to grow up with. And it also on a, on a larger scale or a different scale, perhaps I, your question brings to mind a CEO called Ray Anderson, who uh, the late, late Ray Anderson, who led interface flooring and he read a book that completely changed the way that he viewed climate change in our natural environment. And so he completely reoriented his company to towards environmental practices. And it not only changed his industry, but he was a model for businesses all over the world. And so, yes, absolutely. I think values can change. Do you not think that there was something kind of lying dormant in him, this under underlying desire to make a positive impact and that kind of just opened it up? Or do you actually think it, that that something clicked and he created a new connection in his mind through that experience? Yeah, I did read his autobiography and I don't remember what his experience was in that. I think it probably is more like something lies di- dormant and our priorities shift, right? But that's part of values. We can only, whenever we're choosing to take any action, we have to choose, we have to prioritize some things over others. So even if I value, 
I don't know, even if I value saving on the environment, if it's going to cost me an extra thousand dollars to do it in this one instance, I might diminish that value for, you know, the economical value or whatever else. Um, So the priorities of something in any given moment, I think is embedded in how one perceives and acts on one's values. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. So throughout my experience doing this podcast, I've come to the, I don't want to call it a conclusion, but the theory that communication probably is the most effective tool to get, to get climate action and to solve most of the ecological issues we're facing. Um, Just because people, I mean, I learn something new every single episode and I'm doing multiple episodes a week. So if people actually have the chance to hear others, others thoughts, uh, you can see that hey, solutions are there. We just need to actually put support behind them. So I wanted to ask you, when did you initially um, begin to focus specifically on using communication to get climate action done? Well, it's interesting because in hindsight, I realized that when I was a kid, there are two things I wanted to be when I grew up. I wanted to be an actress and an astronaut. So I think it's pretty funny that right now I'm doing science communication, <laughs> which combines those two things. It's so, not too late to go to space. That's right. Well, I think it is a little bit too late for the space, <laughs> unless I make a few million bucks. Um, but it's, you know, you think about these these skills and these interests that we have lying dormant inside of us and how they get, how they um you know, how they manifest throughout our lives over, over time. But I think it also relates back to my values because something I've always been very interested in is how do we bring people into the conversation? We're all in this together. You know, I'm really interested in us making a better world, making good choices, making smart choices, making ones that are going to restore and, and keep this, this beauty that lives around us, but also clean water and clean air. You know, I, I love the idea of urban waterways and, I remember hearing this one talk about how um, uh, a welfare system 100 years ago was being able to fish in the river, but now we can't fish in the river. So we need to give people food stamps, you know, and, and those kinds of things, right? It's just, it's, things are really changing because we're affecting our natural environment. So thinking about how we're all in this together, the really human aspect of it, and we're trying to create a better world, it just, it just, it's been really interesting over the course of my career, how I've been able and feel very fortunate that I've been able to act on both of those values into the into the kind of job that I have today. I think any of us that are living in the United States of America are very fortunate, no matter how you feel about the country. Um, I can't deny it's an amazing place to live with so much opportunity, um, but it's not necessarily equal opportunity, but the opportunity still is there if you, you go out and you get it just for my thoughts. Um, so as far as your work at MIT, can you tell me a bit about the Climate Collab before we start talking about the, the most recent project, the Solutions Initiative? Yeah, sure. So I've been at MIT for almost 10 years, and the first four or so of those were at this group called the Climate Collab, which was operated out of a center called the MIT Center for Collective Intelligence. Sounds very MIT. And the idea of the Climate Collab was using, building off of the theories of collective intelligence, kind of like think about Wikipedia, right? Um, you could have people kind of go off and a few people uh, generate an Encyclopedia Britannica that kind of sits on the shelves, but Wikipedia engages pretty much everyone from around the world who wants to participate in it in creating the world's knowledge. And they found that there's actually an equivalence in terms of accuracy of those two things, one of which is very cheap um, and constantly updated and incredibly accessible and free to use, 
one of which is Encyclopedia Britannica, which I don't think they're even really producing those anymore. So, um, so building on those theories, what we did at Climate Collab was we run a series of annual contests to generate ideas and collaboration from people all around the world on what we can do about different aspects of climate change. So for example, we had um, a running contest on carbon pricing on how could we actually implement a carbon price um, in the United States. And so some people were like, well, here's here, here are some policy strategies for a national price on carbon emissions. And some people were like, well, really what we need is more state level work or regional level work or or one person had like a Bitcoin uh, blockchain application of carbon pricing. So it was really interesting seeing all those come together. Um, so that project, I mean, generated hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not many more <laughs> proposals, um, maybe even thousands. We had over 100,000 people that were contributing in some way from all around the world. And this was also at a time where climate change wasn't everyday news. It very much is in the news now, much more than it is when it was 10 years ago or even eight years ago when I was working on this project. And so for me at the time, and I think for many other people as well, it instilled a sense of an sense of a sense of agency and a sense of community. Like it was just remarkable how many people from all different walks of life, from all different fields, were thinking about and proposing solutions to different climate change challenges. I mean, it was just, it's very inspirational. So whenever you think that not enough is happening on climate change, which is true, you should also know that there are thousands, if not tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people from all around the world who are really dedicated to making big changes. I think that's absolutely the case. And I've said this several times on the show now. When I first started, I didn't know anything about the issue. I started by talking to scientists and trying to understand what exactly climate change is. And then I got the uh, the climate anxiety in the beginning. But as I continued on with more and more episodes, I started to realize, okay, whoa, there's a lot of people who are working on this. They're all really creative. They're all very passionate. Many of them are values-driven. Of course, there's greenwashing. But um and they can't deny it, especially now, after I talked to a climate finance special specialist and he was talking about how the market is exploding in this space, I'm like, wow, like we're really getting this done. And I keep looking up more and more new companies who are doing amazing things. When it came to this specific climate collab, are there any um, proposals that actually became policy or became projects that you can recall? Yeah, there was one. The one that just comes to mind immediately when you say that was... Um, one of the projects actually got picked up by a UN group about um, resilience and how you help vulnerable people when there are uh, the most vulnerable people when there are climate emergencies. And that's been uh, that project has been implemented and um, celebrated um, across the UN. So that's been a pretty neat project to see. And that's absolutely essential, like really helping people on, on, on the ground level. At my company, I really tried to get to focusing on, on root causes and trying to get to the bottom of it so we can fix the system. But we still do need these Band-Aid solutions out there because like there's a lot of people that, that will suffer based on the choices of, of others. So that's, yeah, UN sounds about right. What is the um, what is the goal of the uh, M the environmental solutions initiative that you're working on now? Yeah, so I might refer to it as ESI. So at ESI, we're all about trying to help leverage what we have at MIT to solve environmental challenges. It's that simple. 
though there are a few challenges in particular that we work on. Um, so for example, plastics and plastic pollution, um, mining as more and more renewable energy and batteries come on board, we need the rare earth elements in order to support those, which means that actually mining is going to increase around the world, but that has very real implications. So how do we reduce the impact of that mining while supporting this energy transition? Um, we do work on cities, we do work on biodiversity, we do work on um, education, we do work on natural climate solutions. So for example, um, as we as we know, forests um, uh, store carbon, they suck up and store carbon. And But if we cut down those forests, then it doesn't really help us. So there are many different things that we can do to help um, use nature's natural balancing system um, to to reduce the impacts that we're having on the environment. But okay, and then my work in particular is on public engagement on climate change, as I mentioned before, and communications work. So that's a bit about what um, what ESI does. Cool. Uh, before we talk about public engagement, um, can you explain what kind of plastic has to do with climate change? Yes. Yeah, so, well, first, it's an environmental issue. So not everything yeah. we do at ASI has to do blatantly and explicitly oh. with climate change. It's environment more broadly. But what's interesting about it is, okay, so let's say we use less oil because we're not burning gasoline cars. Well, then what do those oil companies do? Well, what they're doing is they're pivoting to creating more plastics. So if we have more plastic in our in our life and in our world, but at the same time, there are all these issues with plastics in our ocean, bioaccumulation issues, um, then with the plants themselves, there can be health and environmental justice issues. How do we balance all of this? So that's a bit about uh, what that program is is focusing on. Are you familiar with, with Simon Sinek's work at all? Yeah. Yeah. And the... The, it's the not what we do. It's why we do it. Yeah. Right. Right. So I, I've really adopted that. I mean, I bring him up at least every, like every five episodes or something. So the, the why. <laughs> Gotta get him how, on the podcast, Ethan, obviously. I, I, oh, I've hit, I've hit him up. He, he, yeah. We'll, 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 we'll get there. I mean, once he sees what I'm doing, he'll probably like, I mean, I give him credit in like my LinkedIn page and stuff, but anyway, so my, I'm really dedicated. My why is supporting business oriented solutions to pressing challenges. Um, but I've really refined my how of my business down to um, elevating the voices of individuals who are working on decarbonization, but also carbon removal. And I consider plastic a carbon waste, like carbon waste removal, whether, whether that's CO2 emissions, or I also consider plastic pollution part of that because it's it's made from the same stuff and it's killing life on earth the same that climate change would i just figured i would throw that in how do you you know how do you see that plastic as part of carbon removal because it's carbon waste in the biosphere that's killing things meaning like if co2 is increasing the temperature and leading to death that's bad if plastic is going into the oceans and being sucked up and turned into microplastic it's not it's not directly increasing the temperature on the planet but it's having that same bad negative effect of decreasing I see what life. you mean I yeah, thought that so you were talking about like some people talk about carbon removal in terms of sucking co2 out of the atmosphere yeah, and so exactly. I thought that's what you were referring to but it sounds like it's different than what you were referring to well, I'm in my way of thinking about how to go about solving problems, I consider those two things in the same camp. Whether you're sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere or you're cleaning plastic up out of the biosphere, I think in my mind, those are both carbon removal. 
Uh, one might be more beneficial to other if you're counting lives saved, but at the end of the day, so this is just how I justify which organizations are going to receive the donation funds. I, yeah. I would support plastic cleanup initiatives just as much as I would. Yeah. I mean, you're carbon. true that these are, they're both, I mean, carbon dioxide is a form of carbon, right? That's the element carbon plastic has the element carbon in it. So you're actually doing something that I think most people don't do, which is looking at the element carbon <laughs> and the form that it takes inside of our planet, which in different forms, it has many different kinds of impacts. And uh, so it's an interesting way of looking at it. Well, in one way, the plastic might be worse because the CO2, they say, will be around for hundreds of years. I'm pretty sure they say the plastic will be around for like millions of years. Am I wrong? Uh, you're well. I would argue that the plastic is worse. Uh, I would argue against that the plastic is worse. I would say sure. that 100. percent I stand behind that the carbon dioxide that's accumulating in our atmosphere um, and in our oceans is a pressing threat that's going to affect us. You know, it's affecting us now, and it's going to be continue to affect us for a long time until we make some really serious issues, uh, take some really serious action. Part of it is because all the things that will happen with global warming, right? Um, all the kinds of people that are going to be impacted and how it'll affect almost every aspect of our society. I think pollution in general, including plastic pollution, is a serious issue, absolutely. But it's not going to have the same kind of devastating effects to our health and to our economy at the, sc the scale of which um, we need to address with climate change. Well, I guess when you think about it, if you put a, a fish into a, a pot and then you filled the pot up with plastic or you boiled the water, the, wa the boiling water is probably going to kill the fish before the plastic will, right? That's one way of looking at it. Yeah. I like to make keep it as simple as I can. But um, so when it comes yeah, to- Yeah. One is about changing like the chemistry and the heat of our planet. The other is just adding a lot of crap to it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Which, so it's, it's yeah, it's uh, they're different, but these are both things that we need to be looking at. They're definitely different, but yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to throw in the how piece, but um, sure. when it comes to having like public engagement on climate change, what are the biggest challenges we're currently facing? I think it's probably getting better, I would imagine, than in the past 30 years, but where is like the largest divide between like the, what the public thinks and what scientists are uh, thinking about this issue? Yeah, you know, the thing that I really focus on in my work so even so, I do do the connection between the scientists and the public. Um, though what I'm most fascinated by is the divide that exists among the public and politicians on a political level. So how Republicans typically think about climate change is very, very different than how Democrats think about climate change. And the reason, or we know this through many, many different kinds of surveys that are done. Um, of people who identify with each party or on each side of the spectrum. So, um, and that's rooted in a, in a lot of different reasons. And this is part of my research focuses on this. I mean, you have issues of the, um, the influence of the fossil fuel industry and in politics. You have how people have become um, more sorted and in ideologically into political parties. It used to be that you really couldn't tell if someone was a Republican or a Democrat based on what they believe. Like the parties just, you could be a Democrat and be more conservative than a Republican. It just used to be that way. But then over time, especially I think since the nineties or so, maybe even earlier than that, uh, conservatives are much more in the Republican party as we see it today. And liberals are much more in the democratic party. And that's actually allowed each party to really hammer a message and drive a message. And people 
have um, it's actually also formed a, a social identity around your political party and your political position. And when you're talking about someone's social identity and their community and uh, how they see themselves, that's a much trickier thing to get people out of, um, you know, than than just like, what do you think about an issue that you don't really care that much about, which most people don't. A lot of people don't really think about climate change daily. Um, it's not like a super pressing issue when it comes to things like COVID and the economy and job status and things like that. So I think that the one of the biggest issues is this polarization, political polarization of climate change. And so one thing I've really been fascinated by and looking into is how do we try and break that divide? How do we make um, not only how do we like help liberals listen, uh, the climate alarmed people help them listen and build better bridges, but then also how do we more proactively listen to and engage with conservatives so that we can bring them into the tent and we can be discussing how do we move forward urgently on climate change as opposed to whether or not we do or what what solutions are actually ones that will work. When's the last time you heard someone say, I'm a conservative or I'm a Democrat? I, I, I can't imagine, think of a time when I've heard anyone say that. Like, they'll, what do you mean? Like, they'll say, I like, mean, I, I, don't... I, I live in a neighborhood where you see signs up on people's lawns that make it very, very obvious <laughs> what political party they're in, even if they don't say what political party they're in. <laughs> I do live in Boulder, Colorado. so And I yeah. do knock doors as well. So I know what you're talking about. But I don't know. I'm just skeptical of this idea that people are really entrenched in these camps. I feel like most people, like more than most, like a lot of people are don't identify specifically with these ideological groups. I think they are free thinking, but I don't know. Maybe I could be wrong. Yeah, what's really interesting about what you're saying is that the people who are the most, who who feel the strongest, are the most vocal. So even though they are a minority, like what you're suggesting, we hear about them a lot because they're the pundits or they're the people who are being really loud on social media or, you know, they're the ones writing the op-ed pieces or whatever. We don't really have like an acceptance in the United States of, of like moderation and tolerance. Um, we, we kind of, even though we might not feel strongly politically from like a political ideology, ideological perspective, like, even though you might not have very strong political feelings or opinions about a lot of different topics, pretty much people sort each, sort themselves into a certain social camp. And that social camp is more and more being aligned with some kind of political ideology. Whether, no, even, no, even if you don't really aren't a politics person, which you're right, most Americans aren't really a politics person. I also think most Americans more, more likely than not are moderate and are tolerant from my experience. And this is just experience of going door to door, living, you know, going to, to college. And yeah, I don't know. I just don't buy into this idea that we're as divided as, as people say we are. I think especially if you can get in a room with someone and you get the, I mean, the COVID stuff is a problem, but you can get this emotional connection, whether it's actually like you like the person or not, you can still see that they're, you can see when you're talking to someone, oh, that person's just like me. They're thinking, they're breathing, they're doing this. I just don't buy into the 
this huge divide. I don't know. Well, that's because Ethan, you're knocking on door to door and you're talking to people, but most Americans don't do that with people that they don't agree with politically or people outside of their social groups. They hear about them on the news or they read about them on social media or other people tell, talk about them. It's right. we're not, we're not connecting, interacting with as many people that are different from us as we used to. So when it's it actually comes- interesting, like the bowling right. alone concept, like the Robert Putnam bowling alone, um, that kind of, if people who are interested in this topic can read some of his work too, where we are becoming more like socially isolated in some ways. Well, America's a very individualistic culture. That's one thing I learned from my, my travels abroad. Um, so when it comes to successes or I don't know, I maybe call it like breakthroughs on decoupling climate change from political partisanism, where have you had like success with that? Or what are your theories on it? Yeah, well, that's why I said earlier that engagement is very different than communications. Because when you're trying to, when or I should say the approach that we take in that kind of situation is going to where people are kind of similar to what you just said, going to where people are talking with people, engaging with them, as opposed to just providing them with resources and materials. Right. Um, But I really think about what are the values that this community or this person or this group of people hold? How do they hear when they, when they hear things about climate change, what do they hear? and how important it is compared to the other issues that they're thinking about and what and perhaps even most importantly what are so they're listening to certain people right we're all we all have influencers simon senek is one of your influencers right definitely so what are those people saying about this issue because you're listening to them right if simon senek were to say something about a topic that you didn't really know that much about or didn't really care that much about you probably would align with what he thought because you about you know you trust him you value him you respect him and you're probably not going to learn a lot about that topic so you're like sure i'll just adopt pretty much you know what he says about it and we all do that it's just we can't be super knowledgeable about everything so one of the most effective strategies is to really think about or to engage with these messengers, right? These influencers, um, because people look to them for to gain information to actually form their own opinion on things. So that can be one of the most effective strategies when you're trying to engage people on a topic where there's some kind of divisiveness or you don't think that you yourself is gonna, are going to be a very credible messenger. That's a really, really valid observation. Uh, I don't think a lot of people are willing to think about their thoughts. And that's somewhere where I, I, that's something I really enjoy to do from philosophy. And this idea that the six people you spend the most time with comprise like who you are, I found that to be the case very much so, which is why I love to talk to a million different people every single week so I can get all sorts of different ideas. So I I appreciate you you taking the time today. Um, As far as like academic institutions, colleges, what role do they have to play in helping solve these pressing challenges like climate change? Yeah, well, I could talk a little bit about how MIT is doing it. And I think MIT is doing some pretty interesting work. So one, MIT is a research institution. What we do best is we produce research that leads to technologies and innovations that ultimately change the world. So one of the things that we're best equipped to do is to do that, but by incorporating the realities of climate change and the solutions that we most need. So you could say that when it comes to fighting climate change and to slowing down climate change, we need to 
both move as fast as we can with the technologies that we have, right? We have a lot of technologies already that winds, solar, carbon capture, lots of different things, electric vehicles. But then also we're missing a lot of technological solutions. And so we need to develop new solutions to deal with those. Um, replacing concrete, making batteries more environmentally benign, um, uh, manufacturing processes that currently require very high amounts of heat that you can only achieve right now through fossil fuels, things like that. So what MIT is really taking on is this dual approach. And uh, we have something called the Climate Grand Challenges, where we're investing in uh, like the, uh, you know, the earth shots or whatever, um, like what are the, the trickiest issues that we're facing with climate change? And we're dumping a whole bunch of resources into researching. And then not only the research aspect of it, because then you need to implement these things in a way that they can actually scale and make a difference around the world. So universities have an opportunity not only to develop these innovations, these technologies, these interventions, but they also have convening power. And MIT has that too. So we can engage with cities, we can engage with the federal government, we can engage with corporations so that they can use and implement these technologies. So th that's um, that's one of the approaches that I think is very important for research universities to take. And also, our um, we're doing a lot of innovative things on our campus. Yes, to reduce our own carbon footprint, because of course that's important, but also to be almost like an incubator or a living lab as, um, as our Office of Sustainability calls it, so that other cities and other universities around the world can take, like we'll do the hard work <laughs> in a way, so that we can make it easier for other groups to, and other entities, other cities and things like that, to implement some of these big decarbonization or adaptation or other kinds of strategies. So that role as a living lab is also a really interesting role that we can play. And then of course, I didn't even talk about education. I didn't even talk about, how we need to prepare the next generation of leaders to be thinking about not just climate issues, but equity issues and so many other things. I didn't even talk about the kind of work that I do in terms of how do we take the knowledge that people at the university know and translate them so that it can be used by people all around the world. Of course, those are some other things um, that are important roles for uh, academia to play. No doubt. And there's no better time and place to try new things and explore than when you're at university or in college. No stakes. I kind of think of it as like a, a sleepaway camp for adults. That's just my perspective. <laughs> I love that. But uh, <laughs> it, it is what it is. So I've got a, an interesting question for you that I, I reckon you haven't been asked, at least publicly before. And it's something that I think about a lot. And that's Western economies like US, Canada, and Europe are responsible for more than half half of the global cumulative emissions. So for people who are listening, the U.S. was emitting before China started emitting. So China might be the largest emitter now, but when it comes to the total emissions that have been created by humanity, Western economies, USA, Canada, Europe, the people who have had the tech for a while are responsible for most of the emissions. So do you think like net z us going net zero is enough or should us as like developed economies with a legacy of creating emissions have plans to actually go carbon negative and draw down CO2? Yeah. So it's a really good question and it's a question of climate justice, right? It's something that intergovernmental groups like the UN are really thinking a lot about who pays for climate change, who's benefited and do the people who have benefited, well, not from climate change, but of course the things, fossil fuel, the fossil fuel industry and fossil fuel technologies, 
um, do they owe more than those who have not contributed as much, as you said? So um, the way that I think about that is maybe not going to be satisfying for you because I'm at this point where I'm thinking we're having a lot of trouble in the United States and in other countries, even committing to half that level of ambition. So I've been really thinking about, and I, the work that I do is how do we unstick those roadblocks that are holding us back from achieving the kind of ambition that we feel like we need to achieve. So that's why I'm digging into why is there, or what are the underlying causes of opposition within certain political parties or within certain culture groups? And how can we almost like, you know, oil the gears in a way, kind of remove the crud, oil the gears a little bit so that we all can be working together toward a reasonable level of ambition. So while I don't necessarily disagree with what you're sharing, it's not the folk, it's not how I focus on things. I'm just trying to get like, <laughs> we, have, we have so far to go before we can even think about draw, you know, that, that, that level of drawdown or like, um, uh, and, and so I'm really focused on how can we even kind of get the system rolling so that we can get to that level of ambition. Yeah, well, we think differently. I'm like very much a, a visionary thinker. I always try to think from the from the end back, and I get criticized for being too idealistic, which is totally fair and warranted. But you know, the people who are the only one who's able to do something amazing is the person who's crazy enough to think they could do it. So I, I stay firmly wow. in that camp and stay optimistic. Yeah, I mean, the the thing is that we need a wide diversity of people with a wide diversity of perspectives. So you serve that role. I'll serve this role. We'll find a thousand other people who are serving all different parts of the system. And by us hopefully working together in some kind of way, we can make some real change. Yeah, that we can. And we're working together right now because it is shout out time. Can you tell me about your experience starting Today I Learned in Climate? Today I Learned Climate. And what are some of the most interesting things you've learned from working on your podcast? Yes. So thank you for mentioning that. I run a podcast called Today I Learned Climate or T-I-L Climate. And it's an MIT produced podcast. And it's very civic series like in many ways. Um, things that we hear about, different technology, climate technologies or impacts that they, you know we hear about in the news or people talk about like what exactly is direct air capture? Like how do we actually remove CO2 from the atmosphere? And okay, people talk about planting a lot of trees to reduce carbon emissions. How does that work? And will that really work? Or, um, or you know, okay, we talk about, we hear about wind and solar and how come wind and solar isn't ramped up to the level it can be? Um, and what are some of the challenges inside of that? So we try and answer those questions in a super accessible format, um, 10 to 15 minutes every episode. We interview guests from MIT and around the world in order to do that. And uh, jargon-free, right? Like just trying to get people quickly the orientation that they need to understand these topics, um, which again, no one kind of explains to you <laughs> out there in the world. Um, we just, people just take for granted that folks know what the implications of all of this kind of stuff is. So uh, that's what we do. It's been, it's a lot of fun. I love producing this podcast. It also is really, really hard takes us a long time to produce an episode because we 
look, we look at something like wind and solar and we look at it from all different angles and we learn as much as we can. And we'll be like, you know, 90% done a script and we'll be like, oh my God, but wait a minute. I just realized I don't understand this one thing. And like, if we don't explain it, the whole show won't be satisfying. So we'll like have to go back and kind of rework it um, because we're really trying to give people a basic understanding of these things, of, of, of these topics. And so I feel a responsibility and an obligation uh, to do that really well. So one of the things that's been really beneficial for me is I feel pretty like decently high level knowledgeable about a huge range of topics now. And for anybody who's listening here who is interested, we have, I don't even know how many, we have 25 episodes out now, something like that. And you can too on everything from sea level rise to geoengineering to heat waves to airplanes to solar energy towards carbon capture um, by listening to these episodes. And that's been um, a real treat for me, especially someone who's just kind of curious and wants to really understand stuff. So with having this broad understanding of these tools that we have at our disposal for fixing this issue, how do you feel about the future? What is your perspective on it? Yeah. Ooh, you know, it's, um, it's tough because, uh, you know, I work in climate every day and Sometimes I ask myself, like, am I really present to what's going on, <laughs> you know, with climate change? Uh, am I kind of just doing, you know, am I doing my job or, you know, because some people get are really like emotionally affected by it and I'm not so much. And I think it's because part of it is because I'm at least doing something, which feels good to be able to, to, to do something that I feel like is making some sort of a difference um, in this topic. I'm pretty concerned um, from what we're seeing that the science is showing us. It's not good. There's going to be, there is, and there's going to continue to be some real damage. And um, I'm pretty nervous about that. At the same time, I'm thinking a lot about the skills that I'm going to teach my kids. And it's not going to be how to build a fire from scratch or grow your own food, but it is going to be about emotional resilience and leadership and being challenged and rising above and getting along with other people and being able to face adversity because frankly, no matter what happens, those are good skills to have. But one of the things I've learned, <laughs> I mean, with all the like apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic things that I've read over the years and movies I've watched and things like that, the thing that really comes to the forefront and all of those themes are, is how important community is. And you see people in their little tribes or, you know, you, we rely on our neighbors in times of hardship. And so that to me seems to be one of the most important aspects of, I guess, like social resilience in a way, um, no matter what kind of adversity we're facing, whether it's war with Russia or, a climate threat or runaway inflation or whatever it is, economic damage, um, you know, um, all these racial issues that we're dealing with in our country, our community can be an incredible source of support and inspiration and a lifeline in hard times. 
So that's what I'm focusing on these days. That's a great thing to focus on. We are we are hardwired to rely on our communities. When you are involved with people in an environment, sometimes you might feel ostracized, but we're designed with our chemicals in our brain to to thrive around others and to seek admiration, which could be a problem in itself. But um, it's all it's all about who you spend your time with. Like we talked about, the six to six people comprise who you are. Uh, so be surrounded by good people. So uh, it's been great talking to you today. I did want to ask you um, how you could kind of twist this ch- climate change threat as an opportunity for young folks who are just getting into the workforce now. Yeah. Well, th- what's amazing about this time right now is that if you are passionate and interested in climate issues, there is a job out there. (laughs) I mean, uh, there are so many, more than I've ever, ever, ever seen before, um, industries, companies um, that are really focusing on climate change, or if they're not focusing on it completely, they want to incorporate in what they're doing. And I don't think this means you have to give up your career path and become an environmental activist. I didn't do that myself, um, and I'm not (laughs) recommending that you do. But I think what we need most is no matter what you're interested in doing, you want to be a nurse, you want to be an architect, you want to be an engineer, you want to um, do corporate finance, whatever it is you want to do, you want to be a welder, um, think you can incorporate the mentality and the knowledge that you have about climate change and bring it to whatever we're doing. Because we don't just need a thousand more, a million more climate activists. We need people in every part of society doing the things that they are most skilled at and thinking of and coming at it through a context of what do we need to do in order to reduce emissions and prepare for climate change? Boom. That's it right there. hundred percent on board. Um, Laura, it's been really great having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the Thanks, time. Thanks, Ethan. <laughs> You're very welcome. Before I go, I want to give two more shout outs to the people at MIT. They have this En-ROADS climate simulator that lets you like play with different whatever they're called, like variables, like how much how much uh, CO2 and, or how much gas we're producing or how many trees we're planting. And you can project how much the, the planet's going to warm. And then Lar actually narrates this climate science risk and solution webpage, which is really, really cool. So you guys should go check that stuff out. And climateprimer.mit.edu and then E-N-R-O-D-S, En-ROADS. Great, great tools. Thanks, Ethan. You're very welcome. Any last pieces of advice for folks who are just passionate about creating a positive impact? Yeah, it can be done. And I would say a lot of times people focus on what they, how they can buy differently, you know, as consumers, I would say rather than what you can do, think about who you could influence, have conversations with people, see what you can influence. That's the way that we're going to make faster, more accelerated progress on this issue. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Ethan. Take care. You're welcome. See you soon. And we're all in this together. (laughs) See you soon. Take care. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrboulder.com today.